0: Well, good morning. How are we doing? Good Isn't it awesome to see this past Sunday night 117 people going through the water, signifying life change because of the gospel of Jesus Christ? If that doesn't pump you up, you need to check your spiritual pulse. Hey, my name is Dustin Rouse, I'm the pastor of worship, and normally I do what uh, Daniel does. Didn't he do a great job, by the way? Man, that was awesome. I I have a great, like the greatest team in the world. Parker over at Cedar Lake, Daniel's normally at HP, Leanne and her crew at the Gary Campus. It is such a joy and honor for me to serve with such Jesus-loving, humble, gifted leaders. I mean, they are awesome. But I'm excited to stand before you today and to once again just bring the word before us and talk a little bit about what it means to be content in Christ from Philippians 4. And I don't preach very often, uh, but when I do, I'm reminded, I was especially reminded these past couple of weeks as I was studying and praying and reading the word, just what a weighty privilege and blessing it is to bring the word of God. I mean, the Bible teaches us that we are held to a higher accountability Uh, When we teach, I believe that preachers that bring the word of God are on the front lines and the enemy loves to attack them and to try and bring them down. And so I was reminded, I was preparing just the weight of what it means to bring the word of God to bear upon our souls. And I was reminded to pray for Pastor Steve, reminded to pray for our campus pastors, any other man of God that comes up behind uh, this desk and stands before us and brings God's word to us. It is a big task. And so I would invite you to join me with that. If you don't already do that, pray for the men of God in this church who bring the word before us because uh, I tell you what, we need it. Uh, We need it desperately. So I encourage you to do that. So I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be content in Christ from Philippians 4. Before we get there, uh, to get our hearts going in that direction, let me just tell you a little story. There was once a stonecutter who was dissatisfied with himself and with his position in life. One day he passed a wealthy merchant's house Through the open gateway, he saw many fine possessions and important visitors. How powerful that merchant must be, thought the stonecutter. He became very envious and wished that he could be like the merchant. To his great surprise, he suddenly became the merchant, enjoying more luxuries and powers than he had ever imagined, but envied and detested by those less wealthy than himself. Soon a high official passed by, carried in a sedan chair, accompanied by attendants and escorted by soldiers beating gongs. Everyone, no matter how wealthy, had to bow low before the procession. How powerful that official is, he thought. I wish I could be a high official. Then he became the high official. Carried everywhere in the embroidered sedan chair, feared and hated by all the people around. It was a hot summer day, so the official felt very uncomfortable in the sticky sedan chair. He looked up at the sun. It shone proudly in the sky, unaffected by his presence. How powerful the sun is, he thought. I wish I could be the sun. Then he became the sun, shining fiercely down on everyone, scorching the fields, cursed by the farmers and laborers. But a huge black cloud moved between him and the earth so that his light could no longer shine on everything below. How powerful that storm cloud is, he thought. I wish that I could be a cloud. Then he became the cloud, flooding the fields and villages, shouted out by everyone. But soon he found that he was being pushed away by some great force and realized it was the wind. How powerful it is, he thought. I wish I could be the wind. Then he became the wind, blowing tiles off roofs of houses, uprooting trees, feared and hated by all below him. But after a while, he ran up against something that would not move. No matter how forcefully he blew against it, a huge towering rock, how powerful that rock is, he thought. I wish that I could be a rock. Then he became the rock, more powerful than anything else on the earth. But as he stood there, he heard the sound of a hammer pounding a chisel into the hard surface. And felt himself being changed. What could be more powerful than I, the rock, he thought. He looked down and saw far below him the figure of a stone cutter. And that's oftentimes how we live life, isn't it? We start in one lot which God has given us, and we we wish that we had this, and we wish we had this, and we run from this, and we go to that, and we think that's gonna satisfy, that's gonna bring us contentment. Finally, like this guy going from thing to thing. And at the end of the day, what do we realize? It all leaves us empty. Because we were not meant to find our contentment in the things of this world. I'll tell you just another quick example that happened this past week, and I got permission to tell this by my 9-year-old here in the front row. Like three weeks ago, his good friends got a Fitbit, like a knockoff $20 Amazon Fitbit. And he's, he saw it, and he was like, Dad, this Fitbit is so cool, man. I'm like, why do you want a Fitbit? But okay. He's like, it's awesome. It tells the time and steps and this and that. I said, all right. And we kind of pushed it off, his mom and I. And like a couple of days later, he's like, dad, seriously, that Fitbit, I, I need that Fitbit. It is like really, really great. And so he raised some money. And he's like, I got $25. That's how much it costs, right? We got Amazon Prime, free shipping. Hey, works out. <laughs> and so his mom's finally like, okay, fine. She so ordered it. He gave her the cash. And uh, so we ordered it. And, and then, and then we, we move on. And And every day he's like, hey, dad, when's the Fitbit coming? Can we go check the tracking? Like, where is it on the little, you know, thing? And uh, his mom's like, okay, okay, a day from now it's coming, a day from now it's coming. Here it is. Fitbit arrives. It's like the day. Unboxes it, pulls it out. It's the greatest day of his life. He's got the Fitbit. Puts it on. Literally for the next 30 minutes, every 30 seconds, he's walking going, I just burned seven calories. Like a minute later, I hear I just walked 12 steps. I tell you what, it is good because he's got to, finally got a watch, it, and am like, "Hey, man, be home by 6:30 for dinner." That's been great. <laughs> and he's wearing it right now because he knew I was going to tell the story. But we found it a week later on his dresser. I was like, "Dude, you loved the, you said the Fitbit was like everything that you ever needed. Like, what? Why aren't you wearing it anymore? And it doesn't fit, and this and that." And he's a good kid, and I, I love you, Hudson. It was. Uh, He's got a great heart and he's wearing it and he loves it and it's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think there is seen in that story and in the story that I just told that we do this, don't we, on a greater scale? We are going through life going, man, if I can just get to that raise, I am going to be content. If I can just have this many kids, I am going to be content. If I can just get this pay raise, marry this person, uh, be the person that everybody's jealous of on an Instagram feed and liking all my photos, if I can just be that, I will finally be content. And what do we find over and over and over again? We get the thing. We get to it. Yeah, I'm, I still don't, it's not there. It doesn't, doesn't satisfy me. It doesn't fulfill me. So as I was preparing uh, the sermon, that just kind of struck me. Do you ever find yourself doing that, running from thing to thing, thinking it's going to bring contentedness to your life? Ever find yourself wishing you had somebody else's life, you know? Saying, if I get that job, I'll finally be content. If I make that much money. But finding over and over again that those things do not bring peace, joy, and contentment. And I'll tell you, this was a personally challenging sermon for me to study, prepare, and I feel a tad hypocritical preaching it because this is one of my biggest weaknesses. I struggle with contentment oftentimes in my life. Just ask my bride. I'm like a roller coaster, man. Like one day I'm great, next day, what what happened? What what is wrong with you? You're a different person. Like literally this week, like Wednesday, I'd already written the sermon, I already had it in my heart and I'm sitting on our back deck. It's a nice night, my string lights are going, the vibe is good, cold drinks in our hand, hanging out with my beautiful wife and I'm stewing in discontentment in my chair because one little thing went wrong that day, and I'm just so easily swayed in my happiness. I can become so easily discontent. My joy is robbed by comparison. You guys ever struggle with that? Just me? Sure, we all struggle with that to differing degrees, I would say. So how do we find contentment? How can we walk with a spiritual equilibrium that can walk us through life and keep us confident in going forward without swaying from side to side when everything changes in our life? Well, I think Philippians 4 is a helpful antidote for that. And so let's read from Philippians 4, verses 10 uh, through 13. Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul basically says here that he has learned that secret to contentment both in the highs and... And in the lows, whatever life throws at him, he says, I've learned the secret to being content in any and every circumstance. To give this little piece of the scripture, this passage right here, to give it context, let me just explain a little bit about the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians that we read today is actually a letter that was written by Paul to the church of Philippi. And it was written to this church that he actually planted. So Paul planted the church in Philippi. It was actually the first church that he planted in Europe as he was taking the gospel on his apostolic journey throughout uh, Europe. You know, the most interesting thing to me is where is Paul writing this letter from? You know, for us, when we think about travels, we think about going to hotels. And maybe you imagine, probably don't, but it helps make the point that Paul Was in a hotel one morning, you know, waking up on his travels, on his apostolic journey, wakes up, puts his feet in those nice, cool, white, fluffy slippers that they give you in the hotel. You know what I'm saying? Those things are gross, actually. Don't use those. But anyways, maybe he puts his feet in those things. He puts the white, fuzzy, comfy robe on. He orders room service. He goes and opens those amazing room-darkening shades, which make you sleep until 1 p.m. They're so awesome. He opens them up, pours himself a cup of coffee, pops open the laptop hey, Church of Philippi, this is what's happening in my life right now. Let me encourage you. That is not what happened at all because, first of all, there wasn't laptops in the first century. Second of all, the dude was in jail. Paul is in prison as he writes this letter to this church. He is facing looming persecution. He is facing possible death. So he is in A jail, which is basically an apartment that had very meager provisions, hardly anything in it. A guard stationed outside of it. And Paul had to earn, but he couldn't earn, his own provisions because he had no way to make money. So he was relying on others, the church and and friends and those that loved him, to bring him provisions to provide for his basic needs because he is in prison. So this is where he is. His immediate future was not bright. And I can imagine there wasn't a soul that was jealous of his situation. Even in the midst of a definite, this is one of the lowest moments of my life, most likely for Paul. Paul writes to encourage the church that he loves dearly. In this letter that we now call Philippians, the word joy and the word rejoice occur more than a dozen times. It's not a letter of complaint. It's a letter of joy and exhortation to his brothers and his sisters in the church that he planted. So with that understanding, we dive into Philippians 10 through 13 to see what Paul has to say say to us as we realize he wrote it from prison to a church that he loves that he planted years ago. Again, verse 10 says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So again, Paul was reliant on the church and those that loved him to provide for his basic needs. So he is saying in verse 10, I rejoice the Lord great that you, you revived your concern for me. That concern was for his well-being. Paul needed provisions. He needed things to help him live. He couldn't earn it. He couldn't get it. So he relied on others outside of him and outside of his control to bring him these gifts to help provide for his needs. But Paul shows us here that his contentment is not in the gift itself, but what in the gift meant. So what we see in verse 10 is that contentment flows from the eternal and not from the temporal. Contentment flows from the eternal, not from the temporal. He begins this section with the word rejoice. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, he says. With possible death looming, a pretty dire situation, he doesn't complain. He rejoices. I mean, isn't that a little bit crazy? Like I'm not sure if I was in jail, I would be rejoicing. I would probably be praying in precatory prayers and all those that put me there and complaining and doing things that I wouldn't be proud of because I'm just not wired that way. But by the power that he has found that we're gonna study here later, he has found this contentment that he can have. And it kind of seems like he is complaining in verse 10. Like, hey guys, thanks for finally remembering me. It's been a while since I've heard from you. i have almost to the end of my provisions and you haven't been to visit me in a while. Where, where have you been? That's what it kind of feels like, but actually that's not what he's saying at all. He's rejoicing the Lord greatly that at length they revived their concern for him because maybe they just didn't have a chance to come visit him. Nobody knows why. Maybe a messenger wasn't available. Maybe the roads weren't great to travel. Maybe the weather wasn't great. But for some reason, there was this length of time between the first visit and then this one that Epaphroditus comes and brings this gift to Paul. So Paul isn't saying, thanks for the gift. Can I have some more, please? The whole point of paul writing this letter is that he wanted to show his appreciation for what the gift meant a spiritual care and relationship a spiritual care and relationship and a bond that can't be broken that is in jesus those things are eternal those things last forever the gift has an expiration date he will use it and it will expire and if his contentment is in the gift and his contentment will go away but his contentment is not in the gift his contentment is in the fact that these people love him and they have a bond in Jesus. He's rejoicing in the eternal meaning underneath the gift. When we focus on the eternal instead of the temporal, we can find that we can let go of things easier. We find that God can use what we have, whether it be a little or a lot, to bless others. When we are about the kingdom of God instead of our own pathetic little kingdoms, we are joyful in our generosity because it's not about us. It's what? All about try that again. All about. Thank you. When we have our eyes on the eternal realities, it's easier to be generous. It's easier to be content. I think it's just important to note here that Paul's need was met by somebody else's generosity. One Christian's need is oftentimes met by another Christian's generosity. So how are we doing with our generosity? Are we freely giving things? Are we blessing others? Are we about others? Are we selfish hoarders of things? I find that people that are generous and selfless and about the kingdom to be genuinely more content in life because they realize it's not about these things. It's about blessing others in the kingdom of God. So he's rejoicing in the Lord for their generosity towards him. He says, you revive your concern for me. That word is interesting, revived, because it gives us a picture of a flower over the winter being covered with snow, but then being revived in the spring. It didn't go away. They didn't forget about him. They didn't have a chance and didn't have a chance to come love on him. So he, think, he says, thank you for reviving your concern for me as a flower is revived in the spring. So your love and concern for me was revived in the first opportunity you had to come and love on me. I think the main point of verse 10 is that he's not rejoicing in the gift, although he's grateful for it. He's rejoicing in the love that flows from an unbreakable bond in Jesus. And the gift <clears throat> is just a fruit of that. I mean, could you imagine being Paul waiting for help to come? having no way to know if it was coming, it would be easy to become discontent. It would be easy to complain. But he doesn't. He rejoices in the Lord. And when we ground our daily perspective with an eternal view, we can walk with open hands and see what actually matters in our lives. I've heard it said before that you don't ever see a U-Haul behind a hearse. Which is true until I went to the internet and found this. Ruined every preacher's analogy for probably hundreds of years right there. I don't know why they did that. You can take it down. But the point is the same, right? You can't take things with you to heaven. You enter with nothing and you leave with nothing except for what you have in Christ. The eternal matters. The temporal does not Everything that we build, gain, earn, or buy will burn. You can't take any of it with you. But there are things that are eternal, aren't there? God's word is eternal. Our souls are eternal. Your kids' souls are eternal. The kingdom of God is eternal. When we have our eyes focused on that, we find that God uses us in a mighty way and we find our contentment in him. Paul further drives this point home in verse 11, which says this. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content." Contentment is learned through circumstances. Contentment is learned through circumstances. God used all of these situations that he brought Paul to, and he brought Paul through, to teach him things about contentment. And he has learned the secret to it. He knows time of abundance. He knows times of need. He has learned how to be content. This word contentment in verse 11, here's what one commentary says about it. Paul makes clear that he was not hinting for another gift. He has solved his economic problems. How? Not with new resources, but with a new attitude. He is content no matter what his circumstances. What is such contentment? It is a term apparently taken over from Stoic philosophers, describing an inner spirit of freedom and discipline, the ability to conquer circumstances and situations rather than be conquered by them. Such an attitude is the exact opposite of worry and anxiety. So what Paul does is he takes a word contentment used by these stoic philosophers, and they would use this in a way that they would say, I can find this superhuman inner ability to not be affected by circumstances. I can drum it up within myself. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps, and I'm just going to be content. I'm going to be stoic in the way I do it. And he takes that, and he flips it on its head and says, no, you can't find that within yourself. There is no way you can drum that up. But there is one who came, If you believe in him and have faith in him, he can dwell inside of you and then you can find the strength from within because it comes from Christ alone. Nothing on our own can we bring to find contentment. Contentment isn't found within ourselves. You just can't will yourself to be content. I've tried it, trust me. Today I'm gonna be content. Today I'm gonna be content instead of going to the one who can make me content and whom my contentment is meant to be found in If we all try and find a contentment and joy within ourselves without Christ being the one who dwells within us, we will be left wanting and we will be left trying some kind of different self-help strategy again. Paul learned that it's definitely not the circumstances of our lives that brings us contentment. He learned that by the places that God brought him to and through. But he goes on to explain how he learned this. In what way did he learn this? Verse 12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So, contentment is learned through circumstances. Paul learned that. But Paul also learned what he did learn is that contentment is not dependent on circumstances. If we place our contentment on our circumstances, we're going to be brought high and brought low based on what season of life we are in. We're going to either be super encouraged or super discouraged because. We are going with the tide of circumstances. And he says, I know how to be brought high and how to abound. I know how to be brought low. In every situation, I am to be content. Listen to this. This is what Paul is referring to when he says, speaking of being brought low, he says hunger. I'm not talking about like right now you might be thinking about lunch maybe a little bit and you're a little bit hungry. That's not hunger there. That is like, I haven't eaten in a couple of days. I need a morsel of bread just to take me and sustain me to the next day. He said he was thirsty. Not like get up in the middle of the night, 2.30 a.m., crack at the water bottle, take a sip so you can go back to sleep. He's parched. His tongue has swollen up. He is desperately in need of water. He's poorly dressed. Not talking about being behind the fashion times talking about maybe inadequately insufficiently dressed maybe he didn't have enough clothes to keep him warm when he was cold or they were tattered and ruined and barely did the job that they were meant to do he was afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken he faced afflictions hardships calamities beatings he was thrown in jail riots labors sleepless nights hunger again Five times, 40 lashes minus one did Paul endure for the sake of the gospel. 40 lashes would basically almost every time kill a man. So they did 40 minus one to take him to the brink of death to maximize the pain and the torture that he endured. Three times beaten with rods. People threw rocks at his head. He was stoned, shipwrecked, adrift at sea, dangers from rivers, robbers, his own people, city, false brothers. Do you think Paul knows how to be brought low? He definitely does. And you might be in this room this morning going, I am right now in a season of knowing what it means to being brought low. I don't know if I'm gonna make it another day. You have a man of God here speaking to us Telling us that there's a way to be content in times when you're struggling. In times when you are facing even death. I have a, a good friend right now who his mom just got put in hospice. He's 20-something years old and she has cancer and it just went really bad really fast. And I'm talking to him this week about this message. and I'm, We're just talking him through and he goes, he looks at me with tears in his eyes. He goes, I don't know how people can do without Jesus. I don't know how they can do without Jesus. So you can be brought low and be content. And content does not mean we erase the pain. Content does not mean we gloss over it. I'm fine. Put on a fake smile. Content means I'm okay. I know who has me. I know who's walking with me. I can be content. His joy wasn't robbed of the fact that he was facing death because he had an intimate relationship with the one who conquered it. He gets it. He knows Jesus. He knows what he's capable of. He's able to be content when he's brought low. It might have been a little frustrating to be friends with Paul, though, do you think? Like, I'm sometimes, my wife can attest to this too, and naturally prone to complaining. It's not a a quality of mine I'm proud of, but I can complain sometimes. You have a friend like that that complains all the time. Like, hey, can you stop complaining so much? Like, you're you're good. You're fine. It might have been tough to be friends with Paul because I wonder if he ever complained. He probably did. He's a sinner like the rest of us, but could you imagine being his friend like, Hey, Paul, we're going to kill you to live as Christ, to die as gain. <laughs> hey, Paul, we're going to beat you with an inch of your life. I know how to be brought high and brought low. I know how to be content. Hey, Paul, we're going to throw you in prison so you can't see the ones that you love and have community. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul understood because Paul walked closely with Christ. He wasn't perfect in that. I'm sure he wasn't, but his contentment was not dependent on what he was going through in the moment. He had learned to be content in all circumstances. So he had times of low for sure, but he also knew how to abound, he says in the scripture. How to be brought high. Paul likewise Had times of plenty where he was good. He had to personally see the gospel go forth. How awesome would that be? Planting churches, seeing people changed, doing miracles, all of these things, right? He had a good friend named Lydia who was a maker of purple goods, probably really wealthy, probably hung out on her yacht on the weekend, you know, just chilling, having good times. He, He just had good times of life as well. But what he says is, I know how to be brought low, and I also know how to abound. What he's saying is, Not just in low times of life, but in the good times of life, I need Jesus. See, what happens is when we get into the good times of life, we don't recognize our need for him as easily. We're like, I'm good. Life's good. Everything's good. Which could be good. But when we only rely on that for our rootedness and contentment, what we find is, again, we'll wax and wane with the seasons of life. So in times of abundance, in times of high, don't root your contentment in those good times. Praise God for the good times. Give him glory for the good times. But recognize that you need Jesus just as desperately in the good times as you do in the bad. Even when things are good, your need for Christ does not change one iota. I think a great uh, example of this is, is Tom Brady, and I know Steve's given this example before, but... You know, Tom Brady wins his third Super Bowl ring. He sits down for an interview. The GOAT of football, the greatest quarterback probably of all time, sits down to be interviewed, and he just won his third Super Bowl ring. And uh, the guy who's interviewing him is named Croft, and he asks Tom Brady, he says, hey, this whole experience, this whole upward trajectory, What have you learned about yourself? What kind of an effect does it have on you? Brady, well, I put incredible amounts of pressure on me. When you feel like you're ultimately responsible for everyone and everything, even though you have no control over it and you still blame yourself if things don't go right, I mean, there's a lot of pressure. A lot of things I think I get very frustrated and introverted and there's times when I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think God's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27, and what else is there for me? Croft says, what's the answer? Tom Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. The guy literally is the epitome of abounding. He has more money than he knows what to do with. Three Super Bowl rings. Fans idolize him. He's got supermodel wife probably. I don't know exactly. But he, he's got all these really great things going for him. Right? People are like, dude, you've got it. You've got it all. And he's like, I'm not content. I have reached the pinnacle of what it means to abound. I'm not content. Why? Because we weren't made for those things. We were made for Christ. Paul's point is this, our contentment is not to be found in our circumstances, but in the one who sovereignly reigns over those circumstances. Our contentment is not to be found in our circumstances, but in the one who sovereignly reigns over those circumstances. Which is to say that the contentment I speak of today cannot be attained by those outside the faith. Christ is the answer. If you don't have Christ, you don't have it. What we're talking about here is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Not Jesus plus the perfect marriage, Jesus plus the perfect kids, Jesus plus a great house, Jesus plus a great job, Jesus plus whatever your thing is, fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. Whatever your goal and your dream and vision of, it's not that. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything that you need and everything that your heart was made for. So if you're here this morning you've never considered Christ, I would beg you to consider him. You've been going from thing to thing to thing to thing trying to find what your life is meant to be. You're like Tom Brady. Like, I hope this is not all that there is. I'm here to tell you today, there's more. There is way more. There is a Savior that sees you and loves you and died on a cross for your sins. All you have to do is believe and confess that he is Lord and you will be saved. Consider Christ this morning. So how do we practice contentment in our circumstances? He tells us in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I think this is one of the most famous and sometimes I think maybe probably misquoted a little bit uh, scriptures that we have in the public square. I mean, Philippians uh, 4.13 was on Tim Tebow's eye black before he went out to every game. I went to a small Christian high school and literally every athlete's favorite verse was Philippians 4.13. Like, I'm like, there's a lot more verses in the Bible, guys. We could pick something else. They're like, fine, Jeremiah twenty 11. I'm like, okay, all right. Let's <laughs> read the whole Bible, please, you know. But, um, and, and they, they, you know, had a good heart in that because God gave them the strength to run 250 yards, average, whatever, rushing during the year. And maybe he did. But I don't think that's what Paul totally means when he's talking about uh, in this verse right here. When he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I think it's way bigger than those two things. I mean, a lot of times I think people uh, think this is like a name-it-and-claim-it-blanket scripture that you can just say over a situation and, like, you're good, you know? Like, like maybe you're going to a Southwest flight, you know, and they call your number out and you go get, and, like, cattle herded down the jetway to the plane because you don't have a seat. you got to go fight for it in the bin space and all that good stuff. And you're just, you're, you're being herded down the thing. You're, you're just quoting Philippians 4.3 and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And some of you might do that because you're afraid of flying. And that's fine. That totally fits. But if you went in there and you did that going on the jetway, stuck your head in the cockpit and talked to the pilots and said, hey, listen, I got this. You can go uh, grab some peanuts and ginger ale and go chill on the back. Take a break. I'm going to fly this plane. And they look at you like, you ever had flying lessons? Or like, do you know what you're doing? Like, nope. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I just prayed it over myself right now. So we're good. We're going to fly this plane off of here. That's not what he means at all, does he? It's not a blanket statement that gives you superhuman power. I love what McGee says it. He says, says it this way. Whatever Christ has for you to do, he will supply the power. Whatever gift he gives you, he will give the power to exercise that gift. A gift is a manifestation of the spirit of God in the life of the believer. As long as you function in Christ, you will have Power. He certainly doesn't mean that he's putting into your hand unlimited power to do anything you want to do. Rather, he will give you the enablement to do all things in the context of his will for you. I love that last line. He will give you the enablement to do all things in the context of his will for you. That puts everything into place for us. We can't in envy be like, if only I had their life, then I'd be happy. Or if only God would grant this, then I'd be content what we see is that God is sovereignly working everything in your life for your good and his glory, because he is in control. And everything that he brings into your life is for a higher good. R. Kent Hughes puts it this way, Paul is confident that he will be divinely strengthened to do anything and everything that God calls him to. Are we serving the Lord with our lives or does the Lord serve us? I'd contend that we should serve him. For his ways are higher than our ways. When we're walking through the mess of life and are in the valley or whether we're on the mountaintop, we know that Jesus is enough and will strengthen us to face our circumstances. It is so paramount that we realize that everything is from the hand of the Lord. And he will give us the strength to stand in it all. Good and bad. Hard and And easy. He will give us the strength to stand in it all. One word that would help with our understanding of how contentment flows from Christ is the word providence. If we rightly understand the providence of God, we can find the contentment that we seek. John MacArthur says it this way God's providence is not miraculous in the sense that it interrupts the natural order. Rather, it allows for all the contingencies, events, words, acts, decisions, and elements of normal life. God supernaturally weaves them all together to fit to his purpose exactly. So every day, normal, routine things that you're walking through is from the sovereign hand of the Lord. All the big moments of change in your life are from the sovereign hand of the Lord. And don't interpret bad things in your life as he doesn't love you because he does. And that is the route that we need to go to when we need to find contentment in difficult times. Whose purpose and plan is greater, yours, mine, or the omnipotent, omniscient God of the universe? Again, I contend that the almighty God's purpose for your life is better because we make terrible gods. He knows what is going on. He is not surprised. He is with you, and you can find your contentment in him alone. When we see every situation is divinely ordained by the Lord, we know that he's brought us to the circumstance with what we have or do not have to serve his higher purpose. We can find rest and peace in knowing that even if we do not know the why right now, that we can fully trust the one who does know. A man or woman in Christ is strengthened because they are fully able to face all circumstances. Why? Because a man or a woman in Christ is a new creation. Brought from death to life. Has a future That is certain, has a Savior who will never leave us, has a God who will provide for all of our needs and who has provided the means by which we find forgiveness of sins. He is the great I am. He is everything that you need, everything that you were made for. He is our treasure, precious to us. Our contentment flows from Christ. Everything else in this world will burn. But our joy in him will do nothing but grow deeper and deeper and deeper in the life to come. Christ strengthens us by having his grace be sufficient for us and his power resting upon us, 2 Corinthians 12.9 tells us. The Holy Spirit stands by us and he helps us second Timothy 4:17 and first 1 Timothy 1:12. 1, this is how we get strength from Christ. The Holy Spirit empowers us to face these circumstances that God has brought us to and will bring us through, and we know that he is enough. We can walk with spiritual equilibrium and not sway from side to side as we walk the path of life if we have our joy deeply rooted in Christ himself. So let's get practical here how 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 can we do this how do we do this how do we learn the secret to being content i'd sum it up in this one sentence let jesus be enough let jesus be enough it's easy to say that one sentence it is hard to live out but when we do that we can be like paul and we can learn that in times of low, in times of abounding, whatever he brings us to, we can learn to be content because we have a strength that flows from Christ. So how do we do that? How do we let Jesus be enough? What's some practical ways we can maybe put that into place? First of all, know the one whom your contentedness needs to flow from, right? If your strength comes from Christ, you need to know Christ. You know, I go to the gym, you can tell (laughs) and it's amazing what we put our bodies through to get physically fit our attempt to we will lift ridiculous amounts of weight we will run on things don't go anywhere we will sweat and we will make really weird faces while we do it all pain mostly right but just like we put time and resources and, and effort and rhythms of life into trying to be physically fit, I would encourage us even more that we need to be doing that to be spiritually fit. How do we do that? Friends, I think a lot of times in our churches we have lost our love for the word of God. I'm not talking about, okay, I got up. I'm just going to open up real quick, read a chapter, check it off my list, I'm moving on. I'm talking about feasting on the word of God. If you want to know Jesus, you have to go to the word of God. He is the word. What the Holy Spirit does in good times and bad times is he reminds you of things that you know from the scripture. And if you don't know the scripture, how is he going to bring that to mind to you? Sure, he can do it supernaturally, but normally the Holy Spirit works through the natural rhythms of life. Know the word, love the word, because Jesus is the word. It's all about him. It points to him. Everything in this book points to Christ. Secondly, just pray for it. Plead for it. Ask God to help you with it. God, supernatural by the power of the Holy Spirit, let me apply the word to my life today, being content in Christ alone. Let me not be, you know, going from side to side depending on what the day brings. Let me be rooted in Jesus where my contentment can't wax or wane, but it stays steady and I can walk with the spiritual equilibrium that I need. Begging for his help. He'll give it to you. He would delight to do that. Secondly, you want to be content? You got to fight discontentment. Duh. Right? How do you do that? First of all, just be grateful for what you have. So many times we are discontent because we are focusing on the one thing that is not going right when there are a hundred things that God is blessing us with. We're ungrateful people way too often. Repent of that. Be grateful for all that you have, all that you have in Christ, all that he's provided for you, even physically. Grateful people are prone to contentment. Realize, this is how you fight discontentment, realize that God owes you nothing. God doesn't owe you anything. In our sin, we are bankrupt. We are owed nothing. In fact, you know what we're owed? We're owed is wrath. We're owed an eternity in torment in hell. We are owed condemnation. God doesn't owe us anything, but he delights to give us everything that we need in Christ. And the best thing that we need, the most thing that we need, the greatest thing that we need is the gospel. To go daily to the foot of the cross and to remember that you have sinned against God. You were rebellious against him. You had your face set against him. You hated him. You you may not want to admit it, but you did. Everything you lived was for yourself and not for him. And in your sin, he rescued you. He sent his son as a baby to grow and walk and learn and become the perfect sacrifice for us. He died one of the most brutal deaths on the cross. But it didn't end there. He said, it is finished. I have made a way. And three days later, he rose from the dead. That same Christ that rose from the dead is alive today and is at the Father's right hand and sees you and is enough for you. Remember the gospel. Thirdly, attach this truth to every aspect of your life as best you can. To be content in all seasons means you need to understand how things come from the Lord to provide for you in those things. With your wages, if you have a job with your wages, God always provides for you. Find contentment in the fact that he provided for you. And if you have enough, he's gonna provide you for that. If you don't have enough right now, he will take care of you. Be content in the fact that he always provides. With your lot in life, with how things are going, you are part of God's grand design. He is taking the thread that is your life and interweaving it with other people's threads and is making this beautiful tapestry that will point to the glory of God in the days to come. So everything that you do interweaves with everybody else's life and it makes much of Jesus. That's where your contentment is found. It's like, if this is in front of me, I'm okay with it. Why? Because God's going to get glory from it one day. With your physical body, God made you uniquely you, Psalm 139. With your relationships, your marriage, in good and bad, it's a picture of the gospel. Your singleness is for a purpose. In trials, producing suffering, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces godliness. Attach this truth. Contentment can be found in all aspects of life when you root it in Christ. Finally, root today's circumstances in a reality that is to come. If you're in a good time, praise God for it and root it in a day that is to come. If you're in a season of just going through it in the valley, not able to hardly ever keep up, just recognize that there is a day that is coming when we be around a table. Raising our glasses to the Lamb who was slain. Your future is secure. There is coming a day. There will be no more tears, no more shame, no more pain, no more brokenness. That is coming. That is sure. No matter what you're going through today in uncertainty, that is sure. Don't look down. Look forward. Don't look around. Look up. When we look down, we wane and we wax, contentment goes and comes. When we find our hope rooted in Jesus, even if we're going through it right now, we're not gonna know the end of the trial till we die. There is coming a day when we will be with him forever and we will worship our King. No more tears, no more shame, no more fighting for joy. And the day to come, we will be in the presence of the one whom our hearts are made for. And we will worship to our hearts fullest content. So instead of being like the stonecutter who was so discontent that he went from thing to thing until he realized that contentment is not found in our circumstances, let us be a people who attach ourselves to the stone, to the cornerstone, to the rock of our salvation, the rock that will not be moved, the anchor for our souls, Jesus. May our joy and contentedness in life be found in Christ alone. Amen.